Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our I Am series, and so we are in John's Gospel once again, chapter 14 this morning, uh, with some very familiar verses to many of us. Uh, Where do you turn when you are in trouble? Now, I do not mean turning to your parents to bail you out of yet another jam that your poor choices have put you in. Neither do I mean calling a police friend to try to get you out of a ticket, as I've done several times. I'm certainly not talking about a bail bondsman or even a lawyer who can talk to a jury and get you off even if you may not be innocent. I mean, where do you turn when your heart is troubled? When something is going on in your life that has you unsettled within? This often occurs in the midst of major changes in our lives, life events that we know mean things are going to be different for our future, even if at the moment we don't know quite how, like a new marriage or the end of a marriage, the beginning of a marriage, because though the future is bright and exciting, many people do wake up after a a marriage and think to themselves briefly, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? The ending of a marriage, especially when you aren't the one who wanted it to end, because again, the future is unsettled and the dynamics of the family are changed forever. Or when a new baby arrives in the home, the life that has come into the home is again going to change everything in the future or when the last baby leaves home and you experience what is often labeled as the empty nest syndrome leaving you with uncertainty as what you're going to do at least until the grandbabies start arriving. It could be a change in job or a retirement. Again, a major life event that might be uh, exciting And you might be anticipating it, and yet it brings changes. Perhaps it's the death of a loved one, especially a spouse. And many of our widows could testify of how challenging that is, especially in the first couple of years. Our next to the last I am statement has us dealing with some men, some men that you know well, whose hearts are troubled. They are going through some very major life changes, and they do not know what the future holds. And as a result, they are anxious. And as a result of that, Jesus is going to speak to their troubled hearts, and in speaking to their troubled hearts, he's going to speak to ours as well. And what he tells them can calm our hearts during our times of trouble as well, including making sure we are on the right track for all of eternity. John chapter 14, the first 11 verses this morning, as we look at the way out of trouble. 
Now again, I'm not talking about trouble in the sense that you've been caught doing something and you're trying to mitigate or escape the consequences. No, I'm talking about troubled hearts. And if you look around and see and if you listen to the conversations that are going on among people, you will realize that there are an awful lot of hearts that are troubled. We talked this past Wednesday night in my Bible study about the subject of depression. And we included other words in that, though I recognize there's differences. We included things like anxiety and stress and discouragement. These are huge problems today affecting a large percentage of the population, or we might even say to some extent, these things are affecting all of the population. So let's hear what Jesus has to say to troubled hearts this morning. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go in to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then here's the I am statement in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, as you can see, the first words of this section tell us there is a problem. Let not your hearts be troubled. And because Jesus is saying that, then we know that the hearts of the disciples are indeed troubled. If not, he would not have made such a statement. He knows their hearts as he does ours, and he knows the changes that are occurring and the fact that they are now struggling with it. But what are they struggling with? What is it that has their hearts stirred up? Now, I use that word intentionally, stirred up, because we find this same word, the word troubled here, is also found in the fifth chapter of John's gospel, and there it is translated stirred up. That's the passage of scripture you might remember where Jesus is talking to a man who'd been crippled for 38 years, and he's sitting by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? And his response to Jesus is, sir, I have no one to put me in the water or the pool when the water is stirred up. That's the same word we find here for troubled. And it's a pretty good picture of what our hearts might look like. They are stirred up or agitated. 
Now, to answer the question about their hearts, we, of course, have to go back to the last chapter. There we find several events occurring that has them on an emotional roller coaster. They are celebrating the Passover with Jesus, and Jesus takes off um, his, his towel and he begins to wash their feet. That's a strange experience for them. And then he says to them, not all of you are clean. But then he goes on to announce that one of them is going to betray him. One of the 12 who had been with him all of these years in public ministry. Betrayal is tough. All the more so when it comes from one of your inner circle. They didn't see this coming. And so they began to ask, who is it? And then when Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas, Judas leaves, leaving them all kinds of questions. But it gets worse. Not only is there a traitor among them, but now Jesus informs them that he will be leaving as well. And that they could not come with him, at least not just yet. And now they're not only confused and perplexed, they're certainly threatened about his departure. They had invested several years of their life following him and they did not expect him to leave. Rather, they expected themselves to be key players in his upcoming rule and reign. So Peter then boldly declares to Jesus that he is going to follow him. He is totally committed to doing whatever Jesus is doing and going wherever Jesus is going. And he even says, I'll even go with you to death. Only to have Jesus respond to him, Peter, on this very night, you're going to betray me. And that three times. The other disciples must have thought to themselves, is Peter, who is their leader, is going to betray Jesus tonight, then what chance do I have? So all of that has taken place in chapter 13, and that is what has troubled their hearts. And then we turn the page to chapter 14, a passage of scripture that I often use at funerals because it continues to be a comfort for so many people. At the very time when Jesus' earthly life is about to end, on the eve of his crucifixion and separation from his father at a time when Jesus' heart is troubled as well. You still have your Bibles open. Let me read a couple of verses previous. Chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And then chapter 13 and verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus is troubled over what he's about to accomplish and the separation he's about to experience. And yet, in the midst of his own trouble, he is calming and comforting the troubled souls of his followers. And what did he say in order to bring comfort? Well, number one, he says they need to reiterate their faith. You and I need to reiterate our faith in the midst of trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, there is a technical question here. These two verbs, believe, both times there in that first verse, are they in the indicative mode or in the imperative? You can't tell from the word itself because they have the exact same ending. 
And so you have to discern that from the context. An indicative is a statement. An imperative is a command. So is Jesus saying to them, I want you to believe in God and believe in me, commanding them to do that? Or is he making a statement of fact? You already believe in God and you already believe in me. Or is he perhaps making one uh, uh, both, both of those, like one is one and one is the other. Like he's saying, you already believe in God, now believe also in me. And that's where many people seem to land, but we can certainly apply the statements to our own lives without knowing exactly which one he is doing here, whether it's a command or a statement of fact. Now, I assume I am speaking to a majority believing audience this morning. Meaning that many of us already claim to believe in God the Father and God the Son. And that's why I've made this point, reiterate your faith. I'm not saying profess your faith for the first time. I'm acknowledging the likelihood that you already have faith. And in the midst of your troubled times, you simply need to reiterate that faith. You don't need to run away from it. You don't need to doubt. You don't need to be discouraged, though that is often the case. Instead, we need to reaffirm or reiterate. Now, I do not mean by that that you have to walk an aisle and that you have to publicly rededicate yourself to Christ every time you face difficulties. But I do mean that you have to be careful that your faith not fail you during the midst of your struggles and you begin to doubt and disbelieve God. I've said often that it is during these very times that we begin to doubt the love of God. When things are not going our way and he's allowed things into our lives, we begin to doubt his love and we begin to doubt his goodness. But it is during these times that instead of doing that, we need to reiterate our faith and reaffirm and continue to strive to grow even while our hearts are troubled. This means we dare not drift away from the worship of God with the people of God, which sadly is often the first sign that someone is struggling Likewise, we also do not need to give up the reading of the word of God and spending time with God in prayer. Again, these Christian disciplines are often the first to be thrown overboard when we are struggling because we wrongly conclude in the midst of our troubled hearts that those things did not work because had they worked, then we would not be now troubled. And so we get rid of them and that simply exasperates our troubles. We are going to see that the presence of God in our lives is the priority, both now and for eternity. So to consciously move away from God's presence is certainly not the answer for troubled hearts. Rather, we need to learn and we need to lean into these things, the disciplines of prayer and Bible study and the worship of God with the people of God as we reiterate and reaffirm our belief and our commitment to God in Christ because he is the only answer. He is not just the way out of troubles, though he is that. He is the way to God the Father who is the answer to all of our troubles. So if you have a troubled heart this morning, number one, I'm glad you're here. But I want to tell you to reiterate, reaffirm your faith. Secondly, I want to say that you need to remember your future. This is where we find the I am statement, and as a result, this is where we will spend the majority of our time. Here we find that wonderful promise about heaven, the fact that God in Christ is preparing it for us and preparing us for it, 
and that he's going to come again one day to take us to be with him. Knowing that our future is secure and glorious should help us persevere through our problems and troubles today. But the truth of the matter is, many of us spend very little time thinking about heaven, and as a result, it's rarely the comfort that it is intended to be. Now, Jesus does not use the word heaven here. He says, in my Father's house which is referring to heaven, of course. And there he says, there are many rooms. Now, I realize that the King James says mansions, which comes from the way the Latin Vulgate translated the verse. But rooms or dwelling places is probably more accurate, though, of course, we love the sound of mansions much better. Speaking of mansions, did you hear that Johnny Major's house down on the river is for sale? And I think it can rightly be called a mansion. It is on the market for $1.5 million. Now, you probably saw that in the paper, but what you did not see, because it has not yet been made public, is that the finance committee and personnel committees of Beaver Dam Baptist Church have agreed to purchase that home as my parsonage. They are going to buy that house for Tracy and I. And because the article said it needs a lot of renovation, they're not only going to pay $1.5 million, they are going to set aside another million dollars for renovations so we can bring that house up to date. And when all of that is done, then I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to move down onto the Tennessee River. Now, suppose that were true just for a moment. It's not. You know that. That's why you're laughing. But suppose it were true for just a moment. And sometime next year, when that house has been renovated and it is ready, then I would be moving into it. Do you think if that were the case, it would bother me very much if my current house started having a leaky roof? I'd say, don't worry about it. We can deal with this. After all, we've got a mansion we're moving into next year. Do you think it would bother me if the heat and air went out in my house? No big deal. It's just something we have to deal with because after all, I've got something much better prepared. And that is exactly what Jesus is telling us here. That he is preparing something much better for us and therefore we can deal with the troubles that come our way while we're waiting for that time. Yes, life throws us curves. Yes, there are difficulties in our life. But we need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus is leaving to prepare a place for us. And logically, of course, that means he's going to come back to retrieve us that we might be with him in that place he is preparing. I mean, again, that's a logical statement, right? Most of us on Thursday will hear from someone in our family, or you might be the one saying it, that Thanksgiving dinner is ready. I mean, you don't go to all of the preparation, all of those dishes you have to fix. You don't go to all of that preparation without then saying, it's time to eat. And you call the family to the table for the feast. Likewise, it is logical that Jesus, if he has left to prepare a place for us, then he will return and take us to be with him. So we find comfort in heaven being prepared for us. And we find comfort in the fact of Jesus' promise to return. But there is yet more. 
Because the promise of heaven is not just a place, whether that be rooms or mansions. The promise of heaven is to be in the presence of God himself. That where, you may, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, when we think of heaven, we often think of the few descriptions that we find in the Bible. Pearly gates or streets of gold. Or we think about the reunion that we're going to experience with loved ones who have gone before us. Perhaps especially during the midst of troubled hearts, we think about the fact that when we get to heaven, there will be no more pain. There will be no crying and no tears. But the greatest part about heaven is not the size of our living quarters, but the fact that God is going to be there. And so all of this leads to our I am statement today. Jesus is going away. They cannot follow him now, but he's preparing a place for them and as a result will return. And then he told them that they already know the way, which they certainly did not understand. So Thomas, we saw him last week. Thomas also makes a logical statement. He says to Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. And it's logical that if we don't know where you're going, then we can't possibly know the way. You have to know your destination before you start figuring out how you're going to get there. And then Jesus says, but you do know the way because the way was standing right in front of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, obviously, this is a three-part I am statement. But the prevalent one is the word way because that's what the dialogue has been about beforehand. Now, we saw life last week. We didn't major on it, but we saw life last week. I am the resurrection and the life. A way, of course, is a path between a starting point and an ending point. It's the pathway to get you where you want to go. And if you use your phone, as many of us do, your phone will give you different options. If you want to get to some place, your phone will give you three or four different options and allow you to pick the best path. And it will tell you which path the best one it thinks is. And that's the way the world wants religion to work. There are many paths to God, they say. Just take the one that works for you. Let others take the path that works for them. You have no right to tell everybody else to follow your path but take the path that seems best to you. After all, aren't we all heading in the same direction anyway? I mean, aren't we all gonna get there one way or another? But Jesus does not say he is one way among many. He does not claim to be the best way to get to God the Father. He says he is the way. He does not say he is a way. He says he is the way, even as he said he was the door. Now, just in case you think I'm making too much of this, whether it's the or a, look at the next phrase. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man or no one comes to the Father except through me. People don't like Christianity because they say we're narrow-minded. We are exclusive. I mean, who are we to claim that we alone have the truth? Who are we to claim that we have the only way to God the Father? I mean, there are many religions and many cultures and people are raised in many different ways. So how arrogant of us to say that there is one way and it is ours. 
But here's what so many folks don't get. We didn't come up with this. It's not me saying this. If it were me saying this, then I would indeed be arrogant. But it is Jesus saying that he is the only way to God the Father. We simply believe it. We're not proclaiming it, at least not the first ones to proclaim it. Jesus is the one who said it. Heaven is indeed an exclusive place. And the path to get there is exclusive. All roads may lead to Rome, but all roads do not lead to heaven. There is only one way that gets there, and it is Jesus. I remember many years ago, one of the first times I went to Oak Ridge, I was going there to do a graveside service at a cemetery that I had never been to before, and I wasn't exactly sure where it was or how I was going to get there. And sure enough, I missed the cemetery. I realized it, but it was too late. I went past the cemetery, and as I went past it and went just a little short distance later, I came across two guards standing at a gate with automatic rifles in their hands. And I, of course, stopped, and they kindly told me that I could go no further, that I needed to turn around because I was not authorized to get past them. And you know what I said? I said, that's exclusive. You shouldn't be acting like that. Anybody should be able to get in here anytime we want. Of course, I didn't say that. They had automatic rifles. So I turned around and drove away. So if Oak Ridge is exclusive and you have to be authorized to get in there, why is it such a problem when we realize that heaven is exclusive and the only people that can get into heaven are those who come through Jesus? Because he is the only way to God the Father. We've all sinned. That's painfully obvious. Even to the most radical person, you have to acknowledge that all of us sin. And we know that sin cannot be in the presence of God because God is a holy God. Jesus is the only one who was sinless, who died to pay the penalty for our sin, suffering the wrath of God the Father in our place and then rising again. And as a result of that, he is the only one who can reconcile us to God the Father. There are no other ways. The only other option you have is to reject that way, and then you will rightly be excluding yourself from heaven. And we know all of this because he is also the truth. He does not lie. Remember, I've just said he was and is sinless. He says later in the discussion that his words are true and he's backed up his words with his work. I mean, surely he had done enough in their midst to convince them that he was not merely a prophet of God, but that he was in fact God. That he wasn't just a dynamic speaker, but he was God incarnate. Now you may have heard this week that Megan Rapino, I don't know how to pronounce her name, She's the U.S. women's soccer player. And she was playing in her last game. She was retiring. She was calling it a career. She was playing in her last game this week before her retirement when six minutes into the game, she tore her ACL. And so her career was over prematurely. But this is what she said. She said, I'm not a religious person. And if there is a God, this is proof that there isn't. Really, all we had to know 
was that a soccer player tore her ACL to prove without a doubt that there is no God. Now she later said, thank God that I have a sense of humor about this. Well, which one is it? Are you thanking God for your sense of humor or is there no God at all? Jesus has done more than enough to prove that God is real and that he is the way to God. He came to earth in large measure to show us God because he is God and by virtue of his sacrifice, he is the way to God. I realize that strikes a blow at our pride. We want choices. We want to do things our way. And when it comes to salvation, that's simply not an option. But for any of us who are already saved, this statement is a wonderful promise of reconciliation and our future. So when you face troubles of any kind, you can be comforted in remembering your future. And by the way, we selected our next life group book this past week. And we are going to be using a book about heaven. And so now you know when we have the life group coming up, that we're not just going to be talking about heaven to satisfy your curiosity about what may or may not be there. Instead, now you know from this text that thinking about heaven is a comfort to our troubled hearts. There is yet one more word of comfort we find here. We need to reiterate your faith and remember your future. But thirdly, Jesus tells us to recognize your father. The rest of this discussion focuses on the unity of God the Son with God the Father. A unity that is very difficult for us to imagine. So now Philip gets in on the discussion with, a, with an interesting request. Philip says to Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. That's all we need. Just show us the Father. This is really just another way of saying what many continue to say today. Show us a sign, do something miraculous, and we will believe. That's what they often ask then. It's often what people demand now. I will believe if you show me some sort of divine power. Give me some experience that cannot be explained in any other way, and I will believe. But Jesus appears to be a bit put off by this. Philip, I've been with you all this time, you've heard me teach. You've seen the miracles that I performed, the authority I had over everything, whether it be nature or other things, and yet you're saying to me, show me the Father? I think they're still dull in their thinking, and Jesus is not happy about that. And so his response is to yet again emphasize his unity with the Father, and thus by implication, his own deity. And we've seen throughout this study at least I hope you've seen it, that these I am statements are in large measure claims to being God. They are claims to deity. Some people say Jesus never claimed to be God, but we've seen week after week that that's exactly what he's claiming. Because he's not just a mere man. He is not just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And their unity is so intertwined that he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And therefore, you have no reason to ask for a vision of God the Father because that vision was standing before them. And again, it was one of the primary reasons that he came. Had Jesus not come in the flesh, our view of God the Father would still be a mystery. 
But because Jesus did come in the flesh, he revealed not only himself, but he revealed the Father. Because there is that mutual indwelling. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I acknowledge that that is a very hard thing to understand. We, we talk about Jesus being in our hearts. We talk about inviting Jesus into our hearts, or we talk about the Holy Spirit living within us. And that's difficult for us to understand either. But Jesus is saying that the two of them are one. And certainly we can add the Spirit, which is what the Trinity is all about, three in one. I told you last week about the brief pastor's conference I attended a few weeks ago. When we had the various meals, all the meals were included in the conference. And when we had the meals, we had them in a in a dining room, sort of like our fellowship hall, where we were eating with, uh, around a, a circular table with people we didn't know. I didn't know anybody else there at the conference prior to my going. And so you'd just get in line and get your food and then sit down at a table. And obviously you would begin talking with people. And invariably there was some sort of connection. Every time we sat down to a meal, I made some sort of connection with somebody at the table. For example, one meal, there was a couple sitting next to us whose name tag said they were from Fort Mill, South Carolina. It's where my dad lives. It's right next to Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is where I lived when I was in high school. And so I began talking to them about the various churches in that area that they had been a part of and that they were a part of even now. And it turned out that the pastor of the woman had actually been my older sister's pastor for a number of years, as well as my mother's pastor at two different churches in that area. And so when she told me that she considered that to be her home church, I asked her if by chance she knew my sister. And I gave her my sister's name, and she said, of course, she knew her. And she immediately remembered her. And then she looked at me and said, you look just like her. And she said it about three more times while we were eating. She kept looking at me and she'd say, I can't even look at you anymore without seeing her because you look so much alike. It's strong genes as some people like to call it. Family resemblances or strong genes means that we look like others in our family. As you age, you, you begin to realize that you look more like your mother, or more like your father than you did in the past. But the connection between the God the Father and God the Son goes well beyond this. This is not an issue of identical twins. Even identical twins have personality differences, even if they look the same. But this is complete unity. Again, something for us that is difficult to grasp. But just know this, you don't need to beg God to show himself to you. He has shown himself to you in the person of his Son. So find that revelation in the pages of his word. When we go on vacation, when, and I say we, I mean any of us, when we go on vacation, there is usually a point in the journey where we are ready to get back home. The trip has been fun. We've seen places perhaps that we've never seen before, but there is usually that longing to get home, that place that is comfortable. And when we get home, sometimes people will ask that. They'll say, how was your trip? Are you glad to be home? Yes, I had a great time, but it is good to be home. The Bible speaks of our true home, not as the address listed on your documents, 
Neither, it is the, neither is it the city in which we live or the state in which we reside. The Bible says that we are strangers in this world. This world is not our home. We were created and recreated to be at home with God. And the more we experience trouble and struggles in this life, the more our heart longs to be finally with God forever. Remember, it's not primarily a place, though of course it is that. Heaven is not just a place where we will reside, but heaven first and foremost is being in the presence of God forever. But there's only one way to get there. There's only one way for you to ever call heaven home. Jesus is that way. And he calms troubled hearts and heals sin-sick souls for eternity. Did you know that in the book of Acts, at least half a dozen times, collectively, Christians are called the way? We don't use that term anymore. We don't call ourselves the way. But it's a pretty good description because there's only one way. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your son to live and die and rise again in our place, to pay the penalty for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. But we know this only comes through Jesus Christ. As much as this world would like to say there are many ways and different options, there are not. For Jesus himself said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we pray that you would help us to stay on the path of Jesus, that we might not only have your presence here, but look forward to that day when we will be with you in heaven forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You are dismissed. <laughs>